Let me, uh, let's turn to the scriptures this morning, Mark chapter 15. I pray as you open your Bibles or the phone, the Bible app on your phone, you'll meet me in Mark chapter 15. As you're turning there, um, I had a profound experience when I was in college in my own walk with the Lord. Uh, we were at a conference of sorts for young people, and you know how those things are. It's wild, no rules, uh, but we love the Lord, so it was okay. Uh, anything we did was okay because we love the Lord. Uh, but one of the speakers, uh, which wasn't really a speaker, but he did this thing that's called a uh, spoken word. Has anybody ever heard of spoken word? Changed my life. See, growing up in English class, I thought I didn't like poetry. Anybody, anybody, anybody does that resonate with anybody? Just couldn't stand this stuff. Uh, but then uh, a brother got up and he started spoken word, which is really just poetry to a nice beat. Uh, and it turns out I actually really, really enjoy poetry. But one of the things that he said in that, um, that poem that he was reciting from memory changed my life, changed my life. And it was this, because up to this point in my Christian walk, I had been struggling with certain sins in my own life, certain, uh, uh, certain things that uh, tempted me day in and day out. Uh, I, I got saved, as most of you know, uh, late in high school, didn't grow up in church, no church background. Uh, and so when I got to church, found the Lord. I thought my entire existence from then on was merely not doing things that I wanted to do. That's what I thought. That's what I thought Christianity was. I thought at the heart of it is like simply uh, say no to your sins. And it's true. Christianity is that. But it's so much, so much more than that. You see, in that spoken word poetry, uh, the brother got up and started talking about what are you turning to? Changed my world. It's not merely what are you turning away from, but... But what are you turning to? What are you enjoying? Changed my life. So I want to give that to you this morning here. Uh, it's good to be celebrating the resurrection with you all this morning. Uh, and, and here's why. This is the heart of the message. If you walk away with nothing else, walk away with this. It's that the, the resurrection of Jesus not merely has paid for our sins. It did do that. But the resurrection of Christ is the invitation in to walking in a new resurrected life. If you're, if you're in Mark chapter 15, say amen. If you need more time, say hold up. Mark 15, verse 42. It says this, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against it, against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, where, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Father God. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, minds to know, and, and uh, hearts to love. May we see Christ clearly in his resurrected form this morning and realize that you have called us to a new, better way to live, to, light, to live. So, Father, we pray that only the Spirit can do these things, and so we pray that you would work in and through your people this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, two, two parts to the sermon this morning. Very, very clearly, the, number one, the burial of Jesus. We're going to see that's the text we just read. And then immediately following this, we see the resurrection 
of Jesus. And here's the aim in my sermon, is that, that we would honor Christ, we would honor Jesus, and celebrate the new resurrected life that we have together. So let's take this first section the, the burial of Jesus. As those of you who were here Friday night, you've uh, seen how excited I was to finally be in this passage of Scripture because right before this, what happens? The Roman centurion there who has killed Jesus, he has been the one supervising the, the death of Christ, he says something incredible. He says, surely this man was the son of God. Now, if you've been coming here for the last three years, you know why I'm so excited about this. It's because this is what Mark's been aiming at the entire book. The, the reason why he's writing. Who remembers how Mark opens up? Mark 1.1, he says, uh, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He, he tells us in the beginning, fam, that what you need to know about this story and all the stories that are in it, from Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 16, is one thing. That Jesus is both the Christ, the Messiah, the one who will come and ransom his people from their sins. And number two, that he is also the son of God. It's the whole point of the whole book. It's why we get so excited, right, when Peter uh, answers Jesus in, in Mark chapter 8. Uh, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do, who do men say that I am? Well, you know, you know so they say Jesus, you know. John the Baptist, raised from the dead, Elijah. And he says, who do you say that I am? Peter, proudful Peter, speaks up. He said, you're the Christ. And he ends it right there. That's partial understanding. He had part, Peter had partial understanding of who Jesus was. You see, he knew that he was the Messiah. He, he, he had full confidence that Jesus' kingdom was here to set up his kingdom, his reign, and his rule. And yet he missed the second half. And you don't get the second half until it comes from the lips of the centurion who just murdered Jesus. And he says, surely this was the son of God. And there you have Jesus, the Messiah, and Jesus, the son of God. This is the point of the entire book. But now the text opens for us here in chapter uh, 15, verse 42. It says, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. You see, this is the night of couple hours later after Christ has been crucified on the cross. This is preparation day, meaning if you were a good Jew, you knew you had to get all your affairs in order for the next day. You were not allowed to work. You had to observe the Sabbath or remain, uh, refrain from doing any work. And so preparation day is you get everything ready, taking care of business. And here we have a man named Joseph. This is the first time we see him in Mark's gospel, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, here's what it tells us about him. It says that he's a respected member of the council. This is interesting. Which council? Well, we know this is the, the council that grabbed Jesus in the middle of the night. The same council that brought him uh, before the high priest and charged him. And more than charged him, they condemned him to die. This is Joseph, a part of that council. You see, he would have been there when Jesus was condemned. More than that, he would, have been, he would have been there as Pontius Pilate asked his questions, are you the king of the Jews? The same Joseph would have heard him answer. He says, you have said it is so. This is Joseph of Arimathea who would have been in the crowd as the crowd demanded Barabbas be released. And this is Joseph who would have been in the crowd, the same crowd, and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Joseph of Arimathea. 
So we should ask ourselves, if this is that Joseph, if those are the people Joseph runs with, why is he here now asking for the body of Jesus? Well, Mark gives us a little hint, right? In verse 43, he says, this a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, Joseph of Arimathea is actually mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts. According to Luke, he was not only a member of, of the council, but he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, the decision and action of the council. Now notice, uh, Luke doesn't say that he was vehemently opposed. He merely just didn't agree with it. He was a bystander. Perhaps he was one of the council who says, we, we, we have no reason to charge this guy. But he did not actively at any point stand up and say, no, 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 we can't do this to Jesus. According to Matthew, the God, Matthew's gospel, it's at some point prior to this, Joseph had begun uh, to start to follow Jesus. That prior to the crucifixion, Joseph had become a believer in the words Jesus had been around, going around saying. He believed it. But it's in John's gospel that we find out he had started to follow Jesus, not openly, but in secret. Because of the fear of the Jews. Rightfully so. You see, Joseph was caught in the tension of what he believes to be true about Jesus, and yet his very real fear of the Jews. The same Jews who just demanded Jesus to be crucified. The same Jesus who they strung up on a cross. You can see he was rightfully scared. And so during the trial, during the crowd yelling out, crucify him. Joseph is silent. He didn't have the courage to stand for Jesus. But notice what it says here in verse 43. It says, Joseph of Arimathea took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph took courage. Now, first and foremost, this is noteworthy that he even made this request at all. You see, under Roman custom, you would leave a body up on the cross for multiple days. It wasn't, they were in no quick order to take a body off of the cross. You see, under Roman custom, uh, they would leave the body there to rot, animals to come by and eat off of the body. We often think of the cross as something high and lifted up, like you can't even touch it, but the, uh, it probably would have been about eye level. The Roman people wanted not only to rob a criminal of his life, but they wanted to also rob them of all honor. You see, it wasn't just about taking a life, but it was about dishonoring a name. And so here comes Joseph asking for the body of Jesus. Rome would often grant a request to be for a body to be taken down and properly buried, but generally only for a close family and close friends. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Here he is, secretly following the Lord from a distance. He knows what Jesus is to be saying to be true. He believes that this is the man whom will set up a new kingdom on earth, the Messiah, God's chosen one. He believes all of this to be true and doesn't say a word during the council, doesn't say a word during the trial of Pilate, doesn't say a word during the crowd murmuring for Barabbas. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. If at any point there was time to walk away unscathed, it would have been now. It would have been now. This would be the time, if you had any sense at all, if had you been committed to Jesus before, 
but unsure of how to tell those around you, tell your family and friends that, hey, I think this guy might be on to something. But you just watch this person who you thought was going to set up uh, his new kingdom and reign and rule and power, get rid of the Romans, and you watch him be, uh, go through a sham trial, a beating for his life, and then crucified, this would have been the time to walk away quietly and keep your dignity. But that's not what we see here. Instead, we see Joseph going to Pontius Pilate and asking for the body. This isn't on behalf of the Jewish people, by the way. You see, the, the Jews could have cared less if Jesus would have hung there all weekend. Probably would have done them more good. But this is a personal, this is an individual request. Joseph is taking on the courage to go and ask Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor, for the body of Jesus. Not only does he ask for the body, but notice how he asked for it. It says he took courage. Not quietly. He didn't kind of like sneak into Pontius Pilate, unsure whether anyone was watching, be like, hey, uh, you think I could have the body? You know, just, just to clean it up, get him out of here, you know, help you guys out. I don't know. It says he took courage, grew a backbone. He goes before Pontius Pilate and asked him, not, intimid, uh, not intimidated, but with courage. You see, this is Joseph finally stepping up, wanting to honor Jesus. He's putting his faith in Jesus. This is a sign of public affirmation of all that Jesus has said. Though we didn't see it originally, Joseph's faith is starting to grow. It's hit the good soil. There's been a blossom. You see, none of the followers of Jesus believed that this would happen. They believed Jesus would come, set up his rule and reign here now on earth, not through death, but through conquering, through power, so you can imagine they would, how this would all feel. Things would grow quiet, dark, hopeless. Because Jesus didn't bring the kingdom. But despite not knowing God's plan in all of this, Joseph steps up. He, he chooses faith. He chooses faith in the midst of darkness. He chooses to trust the promise that what Jesus has said and what God has promised in his word, that, that the kingdom of God really is at hand. He believed it, though he couldn't see it, fam. Like Joseph, there will be times when you and I don't quite understand God's plan. We will be following him, and it will feel like as if things are going well, then all of a sudden life takes a nosedive in the direction we didn't want to go. We don't understand what God's doing in the moment. It's at these moments that perhaps you are most tempted to turn away. At these moments, perhaps you are inclined to, to, to maybe no longer believe the gospel anymore. Maybe not completely, but perhaps temporarily. Perhaps you temporarily turn around to other things that might bring you joy. There's two lessons we can learn here from Joseph. Number one, even if you failed to stand for Jesus in the past... Don't let that be an obstacle for standing for him in the present. I'll say it again. Even if you fail to stand for Jesus in the past. Listen, I don't know how you walked in here this morning. I don't know whether you've been knowing Jesus for a while now or just heard about him this morning. Perhaps there's been times in your past where uh, perhaps in the workplace someone says, Oh, are you a Christian? And you just say nothing. Or perhaps you should have said something, but you remained quiet. Don't let the failures in the past 
be an obstacle for standing for him in the present. You see, the enemy will always make you feel like you are your past. The enemy will always make you feel like you are your past. But listen, our God's mercies are new every morning. God knew you would sin. The point and the picture of the cross is that you had sin and will sin. See, Jesus, in dying and rising again, was saving us to walk in new life regardless of your past. Whatever your past looks like, today is the day that you can honor the Lord. Number two is to choose faith over fear. I know we're coming out of COVID and this was everybody's tagline for a solid year and a half. Faith over fear, they said. But I'm talking about the kind of faith that leads us to find hope in the midst of darkness. I'm talking about the kind of faith that leads us to find hope in the midst of darkness. And in our hope, we find the courage to stand for Jesus in difficult times. You see, it's in faith that we are built up. It's it's in our faith that we are encouraged. It's in our faith that we are kept going when it doesn't make sense. Far too often we try to rely on the facts of a case before we know how to respond. We try to get all the bits and all the parts and all the pieces and put the story together and then make a decision. But listen, with God, with Jesus, that's not the case. Take the story of Joseph in the latter half of the book of Genesis. The story of Joseph uh, is a story of faith in the midst of fear. You see, Joseph was a son of Jacob, one of the sons of Jacob, and uh, he was extra loved by his father. The text tells us it is he knew it. He knew he was special. He knew he stood above and beyond. God actually gave him dreams and said, hey, your brothers and your, your, your mother and your father are all going to bow down uh, in, in honor to you. And so big old Joseph, big old head, goes to his brothers and goes to his parents and says, hey, this is what the Lord's given me. I believe it to be true. And his brothers begin to get angry at him. They begin to grow fierce at him. They begin to, like, are you kidding me? That's like if Abram would go to Marley, right? Abram's our six-year-old, Marley's our seven-year-old. If he would go to her and be like, hey, I think dad loves me more. But let me, let me change the illustration, because this is actually true. Uh, Myra, who's our two-year-old, uh, it, it, she oftentimes, Julie will whisper in her ear at the end of the night and say, I love you the most. She, she does that with all of our kids. But if Myra grows up, right, because there's a little bit of an age difference between them, if Myra grows up and says, hey, mom loves me more than all of you all, and if the other kids knew it to be true, wouldn't they grow resentful, fearful, angry? That's what happened with Joseph. His, his brothers see an opportunity one day when he's coming out in the field, and they see him coming as they're out there working, and they say, hey, let's make uh, a plan. Let's kill this fool. That's how angry they were in their hearts. And so they, they connive a plan. They trap him in a pit. And then they're like, you know what? Why don't we not kill him? Why don't we just sell him into slavery, and we can actually make a dollar while we're at it? And so that's what they do. Here is Joseph sold into slavery, going down into Egypt, unsure anymore of what the dreams actually meant in the first place. And yet, the text tells us he, had, he found favor with God. You see, it was in the midst of being in slavery that he became uh, uh, acquainted in, in Potiphar's house and became uh, a ruler in Potiphar's house, only to be uh, convicted of a crime he never committed there, thrown into jail for years. 
And even there, the text tells us that Joseph found favor with God. All of this so that he would one day rise to power in Egypt and God would send a, a, a famine on the land. And Joseph had prepared the Egyptian people in such a way that they had all the food that they needed so much so that they began to sell it to other groups that come into the city asking for food. And one of those groups that came in, guess who it was? It was Joseph's brothers and their dad. You see, at this moment, Joseph's life has been a series of ups and downs, ups and downs, highs and lows, highs and lows. And through it all, he's unsure of where he actually fits in the whole story. It's not until we get to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that he says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, this is Joseph choosing faith over fear. And that's what you and I should do. That's what you and I should do. This is Joseph's act of honor. Going back to the text this morning in Mark chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea, this is his act of honoring Jesus. Look at verse 44 with me. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Notice this was no easy task for Joseph, by the way. He would have been put out on this. This was a sacrifice to make happen. It says in the text, he went and buys a a, a cloth, a linen shroud. He took Jesus down off the cross. And we know from one of the other gospels that Nicodemus was there with him, helping him. But there they wrap him in the, in the shroud and they, they take him to a tomb. And we know that this isn't Jesus' tomb. This is all either uh, Joseph owned the tomb or he went and bought it. And they lay him in. Notice this is all kinds of sacrifice going on. And it says they rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. You see, for Joseph, this wasn't merely a checklist task. Okay, prepare for the Sabbath. Check. Uh, make sure family is good, check. Bury the body of Jesus, check. This was no task list. This was all sacrifice. Heartfelt, deliberate acts of sacrifice because Joseph knew that in order to worship the Lord, the will require sacrifice. You see, following Jesus' family is not convenient. And we live in a world that is obsessed with convenience. My microwave has been dead for about three weeks you know how inconvenient it is to melt some butter at this point? You've got to get a whole pot. It's a whole thing. Well, what about warming tortilla shells for tacos? Normally, you pop that sucker in the microwave for about 10 seconds, and you're good to go. At this point, it takes about 45 seconds for each tortilla, both sides, and I've got about 12 tortillas I've got to heat up. Now I'm five minutes into this thing. We live in a world that doesn't like inconvenience. But Jesus never promises us convenience. As a matter of fact, he says uh, to follow him is the opposite of convenience. In Luke 9, he says uh, a man comes to Jesus wanting to follow Jesus. Uh, but but, but he, he says, let me first uh, bury my father. His father wasn't dead at this point. He's, he's, he's old, he's frail, he's going to die any time. And uh, he says, let me just hang around for a while so I can bury my father, Jesus, and then I'll come and follow you. What's Jesus say to him? He said, let the dead bury their dead. 
This isn't rude or impolite on Jesus' part. The point of the story is that, that following Jesus will have to call sacrifice. Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, keep all the commandments. And he says, I've done all that since my youth. He said, okay, go, sell all that you have, then come and follow me. And what happened? The man walked away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. Luke 14, anyone who wants to follow Jesus must be willing to walk away from everything. Also Luke 14, he says that people must forsake all they have in order to be his disciple. The disciple who wants to follow Jesus must embrace the lifestyle that sacrifices in order to honor Christ. But notice our sacrifice is never meant to earn anything from him. You see, Joseph was not acting in a way that Jesus might like him more because he's going to bury him. Joseph wasn't trying to earn anything here. That's what the whole point of the cross is about, is that we can't earn anything. And so rather than trying to earn something from the Father or from God or from Jesus, Joseph is simply here merely sacrificing as an act of a response in his affections for him. Because he knew that the love of the Father was already upon him. Lastly, the last part of the text, Jesus' resurrection. We're almost done. Look at verse 47. It says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of James and Salomon, brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen... They went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Here we see these women, in an attempt to honor Jesus, are going to follow in Joseph's footsteps. They're going to, they're going to go buy spices. They see where he's laid the night that uh, Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus bury the body of Jesus. It says in the verse 47, they saw where he was laid. But now it's the Passover. Now they cannot do anything, and so they're waiting. It must have been a long time. You see, they wanted to honor Jesus by, by burying him properly. Uh, another one of the text tells us it's about 100 pounds worth of spices. And here are these women on their way to the tomb early Sunday morning in, in an attempt to honor Jesus. And notice it says that they're on their way to the grave. They stop and ask the question, who is going to roll away this stone? Now, I don't know about you, but I like to have those sorts of details figured out before I start the trip. <laughs> if I'm halfway to the tomb and I'm carrying 100 pounds of spices, I want to already know who's moving this thing. I don't want to get there and then figure it out as we go. These stones would have been massive, weighing somewhere between one to two tons. It would have been easier for Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to roll it into place because in front of the tomb, they would have like a little, uh, little hill dug out. And there, they would have just simply like taken something, propped it up, and pushed the stone into place. But here are these women. No idea how they're going to move one to two tons worth of stone out of the way. And they didn't care. They were already on their way when they asked this, the question, who's going to move this stone? Despite knowing the logistics, these women were devoted to going and honoring Jesus. You see, if they had waited, 
have all their questions answered, if they would have waited to know how they're actually going to accomplish the task that they want to do, they would have missed it and not been the first to see that the Lord had risen. This should be extremely encouraging for us. That we won't always have to have all of our questions answered before we take a step, a step of faith. You see, it's not our job to know all the logistics or all the ins or outs or exactly how this story is actually going to play out. Our job is merely to obey God. If we had to figure everything out before we go and obey and worship God, I don't know about you, but I would never go. As a matter of fact, if I had to have everything figured out about the Christian faith, I would have never ended up here. I'd probably still not be here, fam, just being honest. If we had to know everything before we actually obey and submit to God, we would be hopeless. And listen, that's what faith in the Bible is all about. Faith in the scriptures is about choosing to obey and choosing to worship, even when we don't have all the answers. Think about the disciples, right, and and feeding the 5,000. Happens a couple times in the scriptures. Can you imagine if these jokers would have been standing around, Jesus says, hey, why don't you go ask the little boy for his fish and his bread? Can you imagine if they were just standing around like, we got to figure this out before we go back to Jesus, y'all. Maybe. You cut it this way. I cut it that way. Maybe. Maybe there's a way. They didn't have all the answers. They just simply did what he said. They went, got the boys lunch, and they brought it to the master. Listen, that's all Jesus is asking for us. We don't need to sit around and wait until we have all the answers before we worship Jesus. But notice, the women come, and they see the stone has been rolled away. Verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You can imagine this, right? The the women there carrying their bags, no longer asking the question how the stone's going to get moved. Rather, in fact, maybe they're asking, why is it already moved? And so they walk in this dark, dingy tomb, and they see a man. And the scripture, the other scriptures tell us this is, this is an angel sitting here in a white robe. It says they were alarmed. I think Mark is being generous here. I think that's probably like the understatement of the entire book of Mark. Imagine your Savior, your Jesus, the one you've been following around for years, talking about good things to come, talking about the kingdoms starting. It's here now. Dead, buried in a borrowed tomb. And you go to honor him. The stones moved away. And inside is this angel just chilling. And you were alarmed. I think Mark's being generous here. But remember, Jesus has already promised that this would happen three times in Mark's gospel alone. You see, right after Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus begins to say this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He says it again in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. 
But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Finally, in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it says this, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus all along knew that this was the plan of God from the beginning of the foundations of the world. And so this is why the angel responds the way he does. In verse 6, he says, don't be alarmed. It's like he, he, he knew. These women are shook. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, right? Notice what he says here. He says, the one who was crucified... I know you might think he's here, but don't worry, fam. He's risen. He is not here. As a matter of fact, look right over here. It's empty. That's what they're saying. The place where he laid. You see, the angel wants to make sure that they knew that Jesus was, in fact, dead. He had been dead, crucified, but that he was no longer here because he had risen from the dead. Imagine yourself in these women's shoes. You walk in expecting to see a dead body. There you are with your... You can tell that they, they, they were expecting to see a dead body because that's why they went and bought the spices. You wouldn't buy the spices if you didn't think there was a real dead body in there. But the angel says, no, 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 no. He's crucified. He's risen. He's no longer here. Come see the place where they laid him. He, he, he wanted to be sure these women didn't think the Romans had merely taken the body. He wanted them, the women to know that this was not some kind of swooning theory that maybe Jesus wasn't really dead after being crucified and beaten within an inch of his life. Now, the angel here is very specific that Jesus has risen from the dead. He wanted them to see the glory of God that Jesus had been resurrected. This isn't the first resurrection in the Bible. Throughout the scriptures, we see folks rising from the dead. Elijah and Elisha, both in the Old Testament, raised people from the dead. Jesus, as a matter of fact, at multiple times in the New Testament, had rose people from the dead. But all of those resurrections, every single one of them, were people being brought back to the life that their bodies previously had. Every single one of those resurrections, those people once again had to face physical death. Think about Lazarus. Dude was dead, lying in the tomb. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, you're not dead anymore. And out he comes, out of the tomb. Now, the scriptures don't really tell us anything else about Lazarus. But can you imagine Lazarus' life for the rest of his life? Like, like think about it. Because like, I'm sure he was, a, he was a committed, radical follower of Christ. I imagine like the temple Sanhedrin, like, hey, stop talking about Jesus. And he says, what are you going to do? He says, we'll, we'll kill you. I've done that, bro. What else you got? All of them, every single resurrection, they returned to the physical bodies that they had to face physical death once more. But not Jesus. You see, Jesus' resurrection was different. Jesus' resurrection is unlike any of the other resurrections in the scriptures because he gets resurrected into a new, perfect, glorified body. He gets resurrected into life everlasting 
This was the final death. He faces that no more. And dear friends, this is a glorious thing for you and I. Because it means that Christ not only rose from the dead to once again at some point in his future 30 years maybe face another death, but know that he is alive right now, reigning forevermore. And Jesus' resurrection, he actually invites you and I into a new resurrection life. 1 Peter 1.3 says it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, Jesus getting up out of the tomb, resurrecting from the dead, not only merely pays for your sins, but it invites you into new life. Christ offers us all new life. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. It's because we've been invited into this new resurrected life. We've been offered the spirit to help us in our weaknesses. You see, life is more than merely turning from your sins, though it is part of that. It is turning to the glorious risen Savior who right now reigns on high. He ends here, verse 7. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Here the angel tells them, go, tell the disciples. And it's always, it's, it's a gloriously beautiful thing here at the end. He says, tell the disciples and Peter. Why do you think, why do you think, you, why do you think Mark puts that in the scriptures here for us? Last we seen Peter, he was crying in the courtyard because he had denied his Savior. And right here at the end of the Mark's Gospel, he says, Tell the disciples and Peter that he will meet them in Galilee. Mark ends his Gospel here. But the significance of the resurrection and everything else that plays out from here is explained through the rest of the New Testament. All of the Old Testament, by the way, all in how you approach your scriptures, all of the Old Testament was a pointing to Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection and all the New Testament from, the, from outside of the Gospels is what that actually means for our lives. The rest of the Bible in the New Testament takes up as its aim, what now? How now do we live knowing that Jesus is currently alive and risen from the dead? How should we live in light of this? But notice that the women don't listen to what the angel says here. Now we know from the, the other scriptures that they eventually the disciples find out. But notice how Mark decides to end the gospel here with fear. They were afraid saying nothing to anyone. The reason Mark ends his gospel here is because throughout the book, we see people not knowing how to respond appropriately to Jesus, right? The disciples don't get it. Time and time again, these jokers are dropping the ball and missing the point. Here, at the end of Mark's gospel, the women are afraid. This leaves us as the audience, the readers of the story, it leaves us with the responsibility to then pick up the baton that the women seem to have dropped. If anyone is to go and tell about the resurrection, if anyone is to meet Jesus in the various Galilees of the world where people need healing, deliverance, and good news, there would seem to be no one left to do these things except you. 
the reader of the story. That's why, this, that's why the story ends here. The story is for us to then take it and run. Because Jesus has been resurrected, I'm going to land a plane right here. In conclusion, in closing, I, they told me in school to say that. People will start to listen more. In conclusion, in closing, now landing the plane here. I wonder what you walked in here today with, what you were struggling with, what you've wrestled with, what you've believed, what you haven't believed. No matter what you've faced in church, what you, how you've been hurt by church before, hurt by other people before, listen, let me, let me give you this. If Jesus really was resurrected from the dead, this changes everything. There's no part of our lives that would then be untouched, unchanged by this glorious good news because we know Jesus rising from the dead means that his sacrifice on the cross was enough to cover our sins, to make access to God available again to all of us. So listen, what is it that keeps you from believing this? What is it that keeps you from running to Jesus? All your sins, family, have been paid for. He's called you into new resurrected life that we can walk with freedom and faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the glory of the cross. We thank you for your love without end. Lord, we're thankful for an empty tomb this morning which we celebrate and we celebrate every day from the day we first believed it until now and all the days ahead of us. Lord, because the tomb is empty, everything has changed. We are no longer standing before you as one needing an excuse and needing forgiveness. We stand before you as a forgiven people. Now let us walk in honor and glory and worship to the Christ who saved us. Pray you help us with all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.